0: The story of every great Christian achievement is the history of answered prayer. That's a quote from a theologian by the name of E.M. Bounds who wrote one of the greatest blessings to the church, a multi-volume work just on prayer. And in it he claims the story of every great Christian achievement is the history of answered prayer. I certainly believe that. There'd be no way of definitively proving that. But I certainly believe that. And I think we are going to see one example of that in our text today. We are going to see an example of how God changed the world through the prayers of a faithful believer. Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, and if you would read along with me, verses 9 through 20. First Samuel chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, if you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked him for him from the Lord. Hannah is a remarkable woman. She truly is. She is, if, if you were to find any, you know, Christians will oftentimes sell books like Great Women of the Bible or books that just focus on the women of the Bible, and she is sure to make it into those books every time for good reason. There is just so much here to adore and admire about Hannah. I mean, uh, there's there's a subtle thing right at the beginning of our text. The text begins in chapter in verse 9, forgive me, that after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Why do I find that so remarkable? Well, because remember where we left off? Hannah was not eating. She was being taunted by Peninnah. And so she's, she's angry, she's sad, she's depressed, so she leaves, she cries, and she refuses to eat. And Elkanah goes and tries to console her, albeit it was a little insensitive. But her husband goes and tries to console her and bring her back. And I would argue verse 9 tells us she submitted to her husband. Because she very clearly in verse 7 and 8 was not eating. But then in verse 9... After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. So Hannah does not make her way into the temple to pursue God until after she had eaten. And then they rise, and then she leaves. So even in the middle of her vexation and distress and depression, in in the insensitive comments, in my opinion, of her husband, she submits. She goes back to the table of the woman who's been taunting her. She goes back to the feast the Lord commanded of them to eat and she eats. That would be a difficult thing to do. Admit it. That would be a hard thing to do. But she begins with this incredible demonstration of submission. Verses 10 and 11, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So she then goes into the temple. We know that. The text tells us that the priest, Eli, who's the priest, the Lord of the temple, made a a post up by the door. She goes past him. She goes into the temple, into the house of God, where God dwells. And she pursues the Lord in prayer. She pours out her heart. She pours out her distress and petitions the Lord at his feet. And we see how desperate she is with this vow in verse 11. She is so desperate for a son that she says, Okay, if you give me a son, I will will vow this vow that the book of Leviticus calls the vow of the Nazaretes. She makes her son a Nazarene, And that's why the text tells us that no razor shall touch his head. This uh, Nazarene vow, which was established in Leviticus, what it typically was, was any person could vow this vow. And for a temporary period of time, they would dedicate themselves to the Lord. And the Lord required certain things during this time of dedication. And the two most important ones was they were not allowed to have any kind of alcohol at all. They would have to refuse wine, and the, the text in Leviticus says any strong drink. So the Jews were allowed to drink alcohol, but if you made this vow, you were called to abstain. And then the second thing is they were not allowed to cut their hair, hair during this period of, of the vow. And by the way, this is why one of our famous Bible stories, Samson... Right? In the book of Judges, Samson, the Lord gave him miraculous strength as long as his hair was long. Samson, when he was born, was dedicated this Nazarete vow. And so that's why Samson was not allowed to cut his hair. But what's interesting is, I want us to see just how desperate Hannah is. Not only is she so desperate that she's willing, okay, if you give me a son, then I will do this. I will give him to you. Give me a son and I'll give him back. But if you were to read Leviticus, the Nazarete vow was not intended to be a lifelong vow. It was typically for a very short period of time. But what does she do? I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. You can have him forever. She would rather have a distant son dedicated to the Lord than no son at all. So she says, Give me a son, and as soon as he's able, I'll get rid of him. (laughs) I'll send him off to you. Just give me one. She is a desperate woman pouring out her heart before the lord i want us to notice this this interesting section in verses 12 through 16 she goes into the temple and she's pouring out her heart but the text tells us something interesting she's not praying out loud it says she's praying with her heart her lips are moving but there's nothing coming out and so eli sees this and he thinks she's wasted There's a few things I want us to see here. Number one, again, Hannah is just so remarkable. Notice, she's not an attention grabber. Hannah is not playing victim. Woe is me. Pity for me. I want everyone to tell me how wrong Peninnah is. I want everyone to come and give me attention shower upon me and pity me and make me feel like a victim. She doesn't go and complain with her family. She doesn't go out into the streets and make a public mockery. She goes to the temple and she doesn't even talk to the priest. She blows right past him. She's not interested in anyone consoling her or pitying her or feeling bad for her. She goes directly into the temple of the Lord. This is between me and God. And she is so humble in this point that she's not even praying out loud. She's not trying to bring attention to herself. She's not a victimhood. She's broken. And she knows the only one who can console me is my God. So everyone else can go do their thing. I need time away with the Lord. And as she's doing that, the text then tells us something about Eli and his spiritual condition. We're going to see, in not long from now, in the next few chapters, that Eli and his sons are wicked. But we already see it here. Make no mistake about it. This is not an honest mistake to make. To think this woman is drunk in the temple. This says something about Eli's spiritual condition. Eli, who's supposed to be the priest doesn't know a healthy, holy prayer life when it's right in front of his face. You know, we, we have that expression in English when we're making fun of someone's ignorance. We say things like, yeah, you know, my daughter wouldn't know a baseball if it hit her in the head. You know, it's that silly English expression. Well, that's happening. Eli wouldn't know healthy prayer if it hit him in the head. It's right here in front of his face. And he is so distant from spiritual life. Spirituality is so foreign to him. His first assumption is this woman must be drunk. But to, to, to maybe engage in some speculation, it is possible that maybe this is more an indictment on the spiritual condition of Israel. Maybe Eli sees drunk people in the temple all the time. We know Israel was not walking faithfully with the Lord during these times. So perhaps it's an indictment on Maybe Eli sees this a lot. Who knows? But either way, his initial response is pathetic. And yet Hannah still responds humbly, No, my Lord respects his position of authority. She does not talk back. She does not criticize him. She explains with honesty. And then Eli, to his credit, gives a very good answer. Go in peace. May the Lord grant your request. And this was a big deal because remember during the Old Testament time, Eli is the shadow of Christ. He's the type of Christ. His position is. He is the mediator between God and man in, 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 in shadow, in figure. So, it was very important during this time and in this system for the priest to mediate your prayers before God. So, Hannah has not only poured her heart out for God in his house, but the priest has now granted and brought this petition to the Lord. And so, that's why Hannah finally leaves comforted. Elkanah tried, it didn't work. But the text tells us that in verse 18, the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So he does respond well in the end. And so what happens after that? Well, after their sacrificial pilgrimage, which was filled with many days of feasts, by the way. It was not just one feast. Much feasting, uh, much eating, and then they finally, they're finished with their pilgrimage. They leave, they go back home. Hannah and her husband know each other. And what does the text say in verse 19, the very end of 19? The Lord remembered her. This is what we call anthropomorphic language. It's when we speak of human terms to describe the actions of God. This is not to suggest that God could forget, that God doesn't know all things, but to remember someone is an English phrase for blessing, for honoring. We do the same thing, right? You ask for a Christmas present, someone gets, oh, you remembered. This is the text way of saying God heard her prayers, he heard her petition, and he said, I'm going to answer them. I'm going to give her what she asked for. He remembered her. And then what happens? And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked him for the Lord. So Samuel is born to a barren woman. And Hannah finally gets what she so much desires. And as we discussed briefly last week, Samuel ends up becoming one of the most key figures of this book. And I would argue a key figure in all of redemptive history. So God really works through this remarkable woman in a remarkable way. But what do I want us to do with this narrative? What is it that I think the author of 1 Samuel, what are some of the things he intended, or maybe maybe didn't even quite intend himself, but the Holy Spirit has certainly intended, for us to take from this? What do we do with this really fascinating narrative of a heartbroken woman pouring her heart out before God and having her prayers answered? Well, what we're going to do with our sermon today is we're going to allow Hannah to be our school mistress and lead us to Christ. We're going to see how can we learn from this text, how can we learn from Hannah and apply important spiritual principles to our life today. And what we're going to do essentially is we're going to pray with Hannah. The key element in this text is Hannah's prayer. That's the focus of this text, is her petition before the Lord being granted. And so I want us to focus today, what does this text teach us about prayer? What can we learn from Hannah about how to pray? And I have three specific answers that I think we learn from this text about how to pray, how to have a healthier prayer life. The first principle, the first thing we learn from Hannah about how does Hannah teach us how to pray, number one, pray with faith. Pray with faith notice how Hannah begins her text this is a very subtle thing verse 11 no. and she vowed a vow and said quote o Lord of hosts she begins her prayer by calling upon the Lord and the name she uses remember Yahweh had many names in the Old Testament you could refer to him as many things but this is the first time this one shows up in our Bible Hannah refers to her God as the Lord of Hosts. What does that mean? This is referring to God as an army general. The Lord of Hosts, the hosts in Scripture, this is typically, it can be used in a generic term, but hosts very regularly is used to describe an army. And specifically in this title, it's the heavenly armies, an angel army, and God is their Lord. God is the leader, the commander, the chief of angel armies. He commands the greatest, most powerful army in all of existence. Remember Jesus says this, by the way, when Jesus is being arrested and Peter tries to save him. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. I have at my command a host of angels. If I wanted to be freed from this, I don't need you. I'd call these angels down and they'd come take care of this real quick. God is the Lord of hosts, a powerful army general. So why are we making such a big deal about this? Notice what Hannah is doing. Hannah is beginning her prayer by reminding herself and reminding God that he is powerful to accomplish what she asks. God's great power and authority is not just something that God wields on a cosmic level. The fact that He's the leader of angel hosts does not just give us comfort that He can judge nations and and, and direct world history, but He takes that great universal power, that great universal authority, and He uses it in the seemingly mundane of our lives. Hannah is saying, he commands the greatest army. He's the most powerful being imaginable. I think he can help me with my barrenness. She begins by recognizing the power and authority of God. She knows God can provide what she asks. She's not going through the motions right now. She's am well, supposed to pray. I guess I'll pray about it. I know God can help me. So will you? She begins by believing and confessing the greatness and the power of her God. And I would actually argue that we also see this in Samuel's name. So if you look at verse 20, she names Samuel and she says, why? And she says, I have asked him from the Lord. Now, if you wanted to really geek out and read the commentaries about this, you'll find that this is really perplexed scholars. Because typically when we see a phrase like this, their name is X and it's because of this. What that, what, what's usually happening is the name is providing what we call an etymology, which means that, like for example, it says asked him from the Lord, and so we assume that's what Samuel means in Hebrew. The word Samuel means asked from the Lord. And there are some scholars who make that claim, depending on the root word of the Hebrew, some think that. But most scholars recognize Samuel does not mean asked from the Lord. That's not what it means. It simply means his name is God which was a colloquial expression for he is great or he is powerful. So what I think Samuel or forgive me Hannah is doing by naming Samuel is she's constantly reminding herself and her son of how powerful God is. He is the great one who made this happen. She begins and she ends by remembering the power of God. And so I simply want to ask us this When you pray, do you remember the greatness of your God? Do you really believe in your heart of hearts that He's capable? Does your prayer life reflect that He is powerful? The book of James in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, has very harsh words for people who pray in doubt. James says, "Would you pray to God, do not pray with doubt. For the man who doubts is tossed to and fro by the seas and carried about. He's a worthless person. James says when you pray, you pray with faith. You believe God is able. You trust and believe He's going to do good. Do you pray just because you're supposed to? Do you just pray out of, out of spite? I know God's not going to answer, but I'll pray anyway. Or do you believe, I worship the Lord of hosts and He can accomplish great things. He can answer my prayer." Do you believe He will? I would submit to you that prayer in and of itself necessitates a very high view of God. Anytime we pray, especially what we call prayers of petition, where we're asking for things like Hannah, especially prayers of petition, it necessitates an incredibly high view of God. Let me prove it to you. Theologians, when we describe, if we talk about the attributes of God, when we try to describe what God is like, He has received appropriately... What many people refer to kind of as a joke is the omnis. God is the God of the omnis. Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent. What do those terms mean? God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. You cannot go and flee from God. He finds you. He sees you. He's in your midst. When you pray, you pay homage to his omnipresence because you're assuming he hears me. From a human perspective, it's like, well, God, how do I know God's not hearing my prayers? Maybe he's occupied with the prayers of someone in China. Maybe he's occupied with the prayers of a woman in South America. So he's not here right now. How do I know I have his attention? With a lot of people vying for his attention. How do I know I have it? You see, that's a silly question because we intuitively know he's everywhere. You wouldn't pray if you didn't think he wasn't everywhere. When you pray, you also pay homage to God's omniscience. What does that mean? It means he knows all things. I'm the kind of person where if I have more than five things to do in a day and I don't write them down, something's not getting done. I just, if I don't write it down, it doesn't happen. So if you come up to me after church and say, hey, I'd love to get together sometime, and I say, sure, but you don't see me write it down, you're going to need to text me. Now, I want you to imagine keeping track of 7 billion prayers. If every person in the world were to pray to the one true God, that's quite a laundry list of things to keep track of. And to work them all together and to answer them all. You see, when you pray knowing thousands, millions of people around the world are also praying, you pay homage to the fact that He knows all things. He knows my prayer. He knows how to help me. He knows what to do. He knows their prayer, their prayer, their prayer. If God's not omniscient, don't pray. Who could possibly keep all this together? When we pray, we also give rise to what I think is the emphasis here, God's omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. Why would you pray to God if you thought his response was going to be, what can I do about that? That's a tough situation. You're, you're medically you're barren. I have no power over the scientific laws. I can't make a barren woman unbarren. I'm not that powerful. When you pray, it's because you believe God can actually do things, things far beyond my comprehension. You give rise to his omnipotence, and lastly, you give rise to his omnibenevolence, that he is all loving. When you pray, you want to know what you assume? That he cares. Why do you assume that? There are a lot of people in this world who don't care about you. They don't care about your needs, your desires, but God does. And you assume that when you pray. Prayer is an incredible act of worship. Because we have to recognize who God is before we pray to Him. Which, by the way, as a quick side trail before we move on to point two, this is an important reason why we in the Protestant tradition disagree with a late development This is not early, this is not primitive, and it especially is not biblical. That has taken place in Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism the blasphemy of praying to saints. Don't do it. You want to know why? Because they don't have the omnis. They can't help you. And this is not to bash them, this is just to simply recognize they're human. How is Mary keeping track of the millions of people who pray to Mary all around the world every single day? She's still a human. Glorified? Yes. In a better position than we are? Certainly. But she's still human. She can't hear 7 million prayers all around the world at once. She can't keep track of them. She has no power to intervene in the world and actually fix things for you. Why would you pray to Mary? She can't help you no one can. I watched a movie at Astra. It's a space movie. And there's this spaceship, it's a sci-fi guy and there's this guy in a rocket ship and he's the captain of the rocket ship and they're about to blast off and he says a, he says a prayer, I think it's to St. Christopher. I can't remember if that's it but we'll just go with it. He says, praise to St. Christopher. Someone asks him why. He says, because he's the patron saint of travel. Christopher is the one that God tells he helps you when you travel. I got news for you. If something goes wrong in outer space with your spaceship, Christopher can't help you. We don't pray to saints. We pray to the omnipresent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnipotent God of the universe. That's who we pray to. And that's what gives us the reason to pray with great faith. But we also pray with intimacy. I want us to learn to pray with intimacy. What is probably the premier function of this text is the pure, unadulterated intimacy that Hannah has. The text tells us in verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. Look at verses 13 through 16. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. And so Eli comes and calls her a drunken woman in verses 14. But how does she answer verse 15? Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. She's weeping bitterly, pouring out her soul. In other words, what I want us to see here is Hannah is not trying to win any piety contests. She's not trying to win most pious, greatest theologian in all of Israel awards. She doesn't walk into the temple trying to impress the priest with big theological vocabulary. Oh, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God. God. I have many requests for myself, but I know that I am an unworthy worm, so I shall not pray for me. Look at how holy and wise Hannah is. No, she's not interested in impressing anybody. She's not trying to throw around jargon. She's not trying to. She just goes in there and pours her heart out God, help me. Too many Christians are stuck thinking that they shouldn't pray or they try not to pray because they're embarrassed because they don't have this great prayer life like their pastor or like the Puritan that they read. Now, don't get me wrong. I I do think it's a wonderful thing for our prayer life to mature. Everything in the Christian life we want to see mature and develop and get better and better over time. So I'm not saying that in no way, shape, or form is it wrong to to desire a more pious prayer life. But generally speaking, there's not some level of smartness, level of piety, level of emotional stability you have to get to before you can pray. If you're distressed, be alone with God and pour your hearts out. If you want more proof of this, just read through the Psalms. Great King David and the other psalmists, they have no issue. God, where are you? Why do I see wickedness? being blessed all around me, but here your humble servant is crushed and despaired. What are you doing, God? They ask questions like that all the time. And I ask you this, when's the last time you've really poured your heart out to God? When's the last time you've been alone with God, no distractions, and you've just poured your heart out? It's okay to just be distressed and tell the Lord that. As a matter of fact, this reminds me of that old phrase in English, or not English, in uh, American Christianity. I've, I've denounced it many times from the pulpit, but you've heard that expression, Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion. And we've talked about that here, that's, that's, that's wrong, that's a bad thing to say. Uh, Christianity is a religion. We shouldn't lie about that, shouldn't hide from that. The Bible calls it a religion, so it's unbiblical, Book of James. God desires your pure and uh, undefiled religion. Religion is good, Religion and relationship are not enemies with one another. But the kernel of truth to this phrase, what I appreciate about this phrase, is that it is very true. We've seen it in history. We see it in our own lives that it is possible to have a lifeless, dead, static religion. It is possible to just kind of go through ceremonial motions and not have real intimacy with God. That is a very real reality and if that is something we're going through, we need to repent and we, we need to change because what we see in this text here is Hannah is all about relationship here. Now she's not devoid of all religiosity, where does she go? To the temple. She, this is not an a-religious woman, this is not an anti-religion woman, she's a religious woman but her religion is drenched with intimacy and relationship she approaches God with her heart on her sleeve which sort of uh, deflects from that common notion of the Old Testament that well in the Old Testament they were just all about ceremonies and rituals but now in the New Testament we have a personal relationship with God does Hannah look like a woman who doesn't have a personal relationship with God notice she doesn't go to the priest she goes right past him Hannah has a deeply intimate relationship with God. This is a personal friendship. But nonetheless, it still should quicken us. Because while the Old Testament saints still enjoyed relationship with God, we cannot ignore the fact that Christ has come and only made that relationship greater and more clear. So in other words, what I'm saying is if Hannah was able to enjoy such intimacy with God, how much more... Should we enjoy it? Keep your marker here and turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Remember, Eli was Hannah's priest and he was a wicked, and incompetent man and yet still her prayer was heard. We don't have Eli as our priest. We have someone much greater than Eli. Who do we have? Verse chapter 4 verse 14 of the book of Hebrews. let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't have a wicked priest accusing us of being drunk. We have the Son of God who conquered death and ascended to the heavens who lived a fully human life so that he can what? Sympathize with us. When we go to God in prayer, we're going to a God through our mediator and our mediator says, I understand, yeah, that is hard, I've been there. We have a mediator who is perfect, who is exalted, but who can still sympathize with our weaknesses and it is because we have a mediator like Jesus that the text says, so now we can go to the throne of grace with total confidence. We don't have to go in fear or shame or guilt or worry or doubt. We go to God with total confidence and total intimacy because of Jesus. Stay in the book of Hebrews, go to chapter 10. Beginning in verse 19. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Again, how is it that we have access to have intimacy with God? Because of Jesus. And notice what the text says. The text takes the temple, which is what Hannah was in, and the text shows us how that temple is fulfilled in Christ. So we in the New Testament do just what Hannah did, only it's even greater. We step into the temple of God, which good news for you is not this building. Jesus is the body Jesus is the temple and the church is the body of Christ the church is the temple so the temple has a dual fulfillment in Christ and in his body who is the church so you by being a Christian are always in the temple you're always in the house of God you're always in the church of God so unlike Hannah you don't need when you are distressed and perplexed you don't need to call me at 3 a.m. and say you need to unlock the church I got a prayer to pray now I would be happy to pray with you at 3 a.m. But the point is, is you don't need to come here. And you don't need to ask, oh great pastor, would you please bring my prayer to God for me? Colin, would you intercede on my behalf in the house of God? You know what I would say? You were already in the house of God, and you have a mediator way better than me. The curtain has been torn just as Christ body was torn we have entered into the holy of holies we have entered into the presence of god through jesus christ that is why we have personal intimate relationship with god so i ask you again do you pray with intimacy do you pray as if you have a merciful empathizing Savior who stands on your behalf? Do you pray believing that as your prayer goes up to God in heaven, Jesus Christ comes alongside it and says, by the way, Father, this one's with me. I vouch for this one. I love this one. I died for this one. We need to pray with intimacy. Because we have the one great mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Which, second rabbit trail, is another reason we don't pray to saints. When you pray to them and say, hey saint, would you bring this to God for me? They are now serving as your mediator in heaven. But I've got good news for you. You have a better mediator in heaven. You cannot say what we just read about any of the saints that they were perfect and without sin, that they died on a cross and opened up the way for you, that they live forever because they've resurrected and overcome death. They haven't done that for you. So you don't need their mediation. You've got a supreme mediator. Other churches they say things like, "Yeah, Jesus is the one mediator, but he's happy to share that mediation through the saints." And I say I reject that, but we'll just go with it. That's fine. I'm, I still don't want them. I'll just pray to Jesus. Thank you. I'm very content with just Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I don't need your mediators, I don't need your intercessors. I've got a Savior. And that's how we have intimacy with God. One more text before we move on to our last point. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 7. If you have a weak prayer life, I would call you to maybe memorize these verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That's what Hannah did. Hannah had all of her anxieties. She had all of her depression and pain and brokenness and she says, I'm going to throw it on God. Why? Because He loves me. Because He cares about me. We are so privileged to be able to go to God. But notice this text in verse 6 tells us to humble ourselves first. And that brings us to our next and final point. We pray with faith. We pray with intimacy. But the last thing we need to remember to pray with is humility. We need to pray with humility. While Hannah was certainly not trying to win any piety contest, she uh, nonetheless understood her place before a holy God. Notice how Hannah prays. Look with me again back in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. I am amazed at the humility of Hannah. How does she approach God in her brokenness? Does she approach God believing God owes her something? Notice, she doesn't do what is so often a temptation for us. When we are broken and anxious and downcast, we are so often tempted to go to God and blame Him. Why would you do this to me? Why would you curse me? This is not fair. And so because it's not fair, I expect you to make it right. So pay up. Is that how Hannah prays? Oh God, it's so unfair. Why would you give Peninnah children? She's bitter, and she's angry, and she's cruel. I'm your humble servant. I deserve them. Pay up. No, there is nothing in this text that suggests that Hannah thinks she's owed anything. Hannah does not feel she is owed anything. She goes to God as a beggar, not a debt collector. God, if you would, please just look upon your servant. She, as a matter of fact, she's so convinced she doesn't owe anything, she makes a deal with God. <laughs> I tell you what if you would just give me a son I'll do do this she tries to offer a trade she's not demanding anything this is pure humility humbling herself before God notice she also she doesn't go in there to just complain about her husband she doesn't go in there to just complain about Peninnah they don't even show up she's forgotten that this is about me and the Lord And this is about a Lord being merciful and gracious to me, even though I honestly, I don't deserve anything I have. I don't deserve the next breath that I breathe. Who am I to demand anything of God? Prayer in and of itself is an act of humility. It forces us to recognize who is really in control. And so I would submit to all of us, myself included, I was telling my wife this this week, this is a sermon I'm not preaching to a church, I'm preaching it to myself. And so I would speak to myself and to anyone else for whom the shoe may fit that if your life is characterized by prayerlessness, then it is evidence that you've forgotten how powerless you are. You see, God put Hannah in a place of destitution and it forced her to prayer because she had no other recourse. He does that to us a lot. And I think part of the reason why is because we don't pray. So God says, okay, I'm going to remind you that you need me. And he puts us in these hard places. I wonder how often we would avoid difficult scenarios in our life if we were more prayerful. When we wake up in the morning, you know what our first thought should be? I can do nothing without the Lord today. Let me go to him in prayer. But we don't pray because we think we're in control of the small stuff. I'll pray for the big stuff. I don't have control over who is the president. I don't have control over the division of our country. So I'll pray for the big stuff, but I'll take care of my day. That's arrogance. You need to pray about everything. Prayer is an act of humility. When I see Hannah's prayer, I cannot help think but of those famous words in Psalm chapter 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Can we stop as we're focusing on this this, this thesis of, of humility, can we stop and just glorify God for a minute? Isn't it amazing that He cares? Like, when you pray, God cares. Notice how Hannah could have approached the situation. She could have approached the situation. Who am I that God would be mindful of me? I'm not significant. I'm not important. There's a lot of bad things happening in the world. My petty little grievances with Peninnah and my desire for children. Is that really top priority on God's to-do list. God's got, I mean, from a human perspective, the guy's got a universe to run. I don't, you don't think he cares about your small issues in your life? No, he's got bigger fish to fry than your heart's desires. But Hannah doesn't think that and the Bible doesn't present God that way. There's this famous story, I actually don't know if it's true, but even if it's not true, it's a great moral. But allegedly, allegedly, Charles Spurgeon one time preached a sermon on prayer and a woman in the congregation came up to him afterward and said, I loved your sermon, I hear it, but at the same time, uh, I just don't feel right praying for like small things. There's just so much happening in the world that needs my attention and God's attention. It just feels arrogant to to pray for small things, personal things. Like, shouldn't we just be more humble than that and just pray for the big things? You You know what allegedly Charles Spurgeon told her? He said, sister, when we're talking about God, all things are small things. Yes, God cares about the division of America. He cares about world hunger. But he also cares about you. He cares about you. Your prayers are not a burden to him. They're not a distraction. He loves you. He cares about you. And He hears you. Does, do we have any business expecting that? No, of course not. But He does it anyway. He hears you. I think if we were more often reminded of how much God loves us and how much He desires to hear our prayers, we would pray more. He loves it. So I would remind you, when you pray, to pray with faith pray with intimacy and to pray with humility and I promise we are almost done but let me just because it's in the text let me just tell you two things to start expecting if you do this if you start praying more often and with faith and intimacy and humility here are two things I think you can expect number one answers answers what happens in verse 20 or verse 19 they rose early in the morning worshiped for the Lord they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. The text is very clear. This is not what happened. It wasn't like God said, I'm going to give her a son. Oh, look, she just so happened to pray. Funny how those things line up sometimes. She got a son because she prayed. Now, we don't have time today to get into the whole, the huge and important theological debate why should we pray if God knows all things? Why should we pray if God's in control of all things? My prayers can't change His plan, so why would I pray? We, we ask all of those questions, and in due time, we'll seek to answer those questions. But let's just stick with what the text gives us today. And what does the text tell us today? Hannah got a son because she asked. That's why. So for just for a moment, just put all of the theological controversies out of your mind, and just remember this. Sometimes you don't receive because you didn't ask ask and he shall receive now am i saying that you are guaranteed to have every one of your prayers answered no the Bible's very clear on that jesus tells us the father is a good father and in the same way when a son asks for a fish god's not going to give him a snake so sometimes we ask things and because we're not we don't know all things like god we don't realize what we're asking for us is actually not good for us and so god says no and even that is a mercy So I'm not promising you that if you have enough faith, all of your prayers will always be answered. I'm not saying that it's God's will for every one of your prayers to always be answered. But consistently from Old to New Testament, we have this theme that we pray and we ask and God blesses those prayers. And if you don't ask for something, you're probably not going to get it. So expect answers. But I think probably more importantly, what you can count on most often when you pray with faith, intimacy, and humility is this, comfort. Notice, I love this part in the text in verse 18. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. What cheered Hannah up? Was it Elkanah's advice that his love should be worth more than ten children? That didn't make her happy. What made her happy? Was it The birth of Samuel. I'm sure that did make her happy. Well, we will see. It does make her happy. But she's happy before Samuel's born. It wasn't Samuel that made her happy. It wasn't her husband that made her happy. What made her happy? Believing her prayer was heard. Her circumstances didn't change. But her, her internal state did. So what's the difference? If the circumstances didn't change, why did Hannah... Because prayer is effectual. And sometimes prayer is more about moving us and less about moving God. Prayer has a means of actually bringing peace. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. We'll end with this and then one more quotation. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians... Philippians. Philippians chapter four, verses six through seven. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we turn our difficult circumstances into a reason to thank God, into a reason to pray and pour out our requests, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. If you want peace, pray more. Prayer is not a natural inclination. I wish it were. But it's not. When we want something, when life is going bad, we have a lot of natural responses. We pray with, or we respond with anxiety or hope or fear. But we have to discipline ourselves to stop and petition the Lord to pray in all things. And when we do that, I think we will experience an incredible amount of peace. To affirm that, let me end with a couple stanzas from a great hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all of our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer.